Well, let's make our way back to our seats. Let's make our way back to our seats here. Well, as you guys may have noticed already, the overflow space continues to get developed. We're excited about that. Yes, creating space. Looking forward to seeing its completion here in the weeks ahead, man. It's exciting for us. Well, today, we continue on in the book of Mark, learning what it means to follow Jesus. And today, I, I want you to see what we want to call the apologetic nature of today's sermon. The word apologetic means a defense. How to defend what you need, what you know, what you believe. And I, I want us to, to feel that. In fact, that, that word is used in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3.15. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. Say defense. A defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to make a defense of the hope that's in you. Today I want us to talk about how to defend what we believe. If you indeed are a Christian today, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you have a hope that is imperishable, powerful, that has changed your life. And I want you to know how to stand on that hope and not shy away in fear when it's put to the test. And others of you, I want you to know and hear this hope, and maybe for the first time it'll click in your minds. And I want you to know that indeed God wants to do something in your life you know, there's a lot of different questions that are posed to us, maybe questions you've asked in your own mind. And, you know, I want you to know that it's safe to ask questions. It's safe to say, hey, I, I want to know what, what I believe when it comes to these various things. I'm going to ask you some questions, and I want to know if you've heard these questions posed to you before or if you asked them before. Have you ever heard the Bible is filled with contradictions? Why do you believe the Bible? Have you ever asked, why do Christians have the audacity to say that Jesus is the only way to eternal life? So you're saying good people don't go to heaven just because they're good? Why not? It sounds to me like you believe in three gods, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Explain this to me. How could God create the earth in six days, really? Does the Bible really teach that God made marriage for one man and one woman for all times? Show me where it says that. Why do you believe that Jesus raised from the dead? I mean, really, can a dead person come back to life? What if all of this is a lie and you've been duped? Christianity is for non-intellectuals who need a crutch to make it through life. Why would you associate yourself with that kind of stuff. How could an all-powerful God allow evil and allow me to suffer if he says he loves me? And the questions go on and on and on. You ever heard those? Yes. You ever asked those? Yeah. I want you to know it's not weird to ask a hard question. 
Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. People often ask, is it okay to ask, why should I believe the Bible? And I say, you need to ask the question. Don't just believe it because I told you to believe it. Dig for yourself. Jesus says, if you love me, you love me with all your mind, which means put it to work. Let's try to understand why I believe what I believe. And so I want you to know I study God's word diligently when I teach you guys. But don't just take my words at face value. Please test them. In the book of Acts, there's a people in the city called Berea. And in fact, God says that people of Berea were more noble than other people because they searched the scriptures to see if what they were being told was true. Fascinating, huh? I just want you to have a new fire in your heart to say, God, I want to have an answer. I don't want to be afraid of people asking me questions. Now, the truth of the matter is we're always going to be stumped one time or another. But don't be embarrassed by it. Let it cause you to get right back to the book and say, God, show me. We're going to see today that Jesus doesn't get trapped in absurd arguments. Because you've had those before, haven't you? We're like, this is circular. This is never going to stop. But he's always willing to engage the sincere soul that's searching. He doesn't get trapped in absurd arguments, but he's always willing to come to a person who's got a real question and help them hash it out. I want you to see that. That, that this is the Jesus that we serve who wants to help us understand what we believe. Last week, we, we opened up the scriptures where it shows that Jesus was, was bothered by the way the Jewish people were worshiping God. In fact, I said that Jesus was the first DJ. Did you notice that? He, he was turning tables. Yeah. He, he set the record straight. <laughs> he got people to make some noise. And, and Jesus was calling out how people were, were trying to worship God, but they weren't really doing it. They were going through motions, but their heart wasn't in it. And Jesus literally took tables, he flipped them over and says, this is not what, what worship's supposed to be about. You're, you're making this place a, a hideout for wickedness. You guys are not showing real fruit in your lives. I want you to worship God. And so today, naturally as you expect, the religious leaders got mad at Jesus. I mean, they're, they're like livid. And, and in our passage today, there's a follow-up question they now begin to ask him. We find ourselves in the book of Mark, Chapter 11, today I'll be digging in verses 27 through chapter 12, verse 12. That's on page 848 in that blue Bible in front of you. I'm going to read this for you guys and let you see something that's taking place here. I'm going to read just the first two verses and then pause. Page 848, Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Here's what God says in his word. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, notice the location, he's back in the temple, the place that he was turning tables. And the chief priests, the scribes and elders, they came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? I'm going to pause there. These people come out to Jesus that we got a problem with you, Jesus. 
What gave you the audacity to think you can walk into this temple and do what you did and say what you've been saying? He's questioned. If you would jump down to chapter 12, verse 14. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anything, anyone's opinion. But truly, but for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly you teach the way of God. Then they ask a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Another question. Verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? Question about marriage. Go over to verse 28. Which commandment is the most important of all? Notice. They're coming to Jesus with a list of questions. And in chapter 12, verse 13, the goal of many of them are to trap Jesus. These are not people who are searching for answers to life. But they're the skeptic who wants to disprove Jesus. What I want you to see is that there are times where Jesus does not engage absurd arguments. He doesn't step into the trap. There are other times where he sees beyond, says, hey, I see something there. I want to walk with you through this. And so going back to our passage, verses 28, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? They're calling out Jesus. They're saying, what gives you the idea that you can get away with what you just did here? We are the chief priests. We are the top dogs in the temple. And you think you come here and say what you said? So to ask him, by what authority does he do these things? Verse 29, chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Again, man, Jesus is slick. He says to them, verse 30, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then do you not believe in him? But shall we say if it's from man, they were afraid of the people, for, all, for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so the people, they're thinking here, they're like, okay, Jesus has now put us into a corner about John's baptism. Again, he, he turned this on them. He said, I'll answer your question if you answer me one first. John the Baptist, the one who was in the Jordan River, baptizing people, telling them, repent from your sins, which means to turn away from your sins and believe in God and trust him. The same John the Baptist who pointed to Jesus, he says, that John, tell me about him. Did he, was he sent from God or did he just make this thing up on his own? And they're just really like, well, if we say God sent him, he's going to say, well, why don't you believe what he said? And if we say well, he's just a man-made thing, all the people around us are going to be mad because they held John in high esteem. And so they feel the tension. And so what do you do when you don't have an answer? Well, in verse 33, so they answered, we do not know. And then Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Boom. I mean, come on. Jesus is like, I'm not going to play into your trap here. You're not asking a question because you want to know about my authority. You're trying to corner me, but I'm going to turn this on you. If you give me that answer, I'll give you mine. They were unwilling, so Jesus is saying, I'm not playing this game. I'm done. 
fascinating how Jesus does that. You know, there are times when we are confronted in situations where we're talking with people and we're just like, look, you're not asking questions because you really want to know. You're trying to make me look silly. You're trying to make my faith look dumb. This is, this is not going to go anywhere. In which case, I say, do not get trapped in absurd arguments. But on the other hand, sometimes, oftentimes, there are people who have legit questions. And they are sincere souls that are searching. And it's in those times that we need to be able to have a response and say, well, let me walk with you here. And sometimes it's easy to say, oh, you're just trying to have an argument. When really they're like, no, 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 I'm really trying to know. You're like, no, no, you're having an argument because you don't know what to say. And they're like, no, no, I really want to know. And so what I want you to hear now, I want you to be able to say what you believe and why you believe it. I, I just, I long for that for us. Family, I, I long to see our generation, even a young generation of, of youth and young adults who are not okay with, I don't know. But who are saying, I'm going to go find that answer for you. I, I'm going to think of scenarios, questions that people ask me, and even if it hasn't been asked yet, I know that's coming my way, I'm going to prepare an answer. I'm going to study. I'm going to learn that. I long to see that. People with an undivided passion for God saying, God, I want to represent you. I don't want to hide, say, oh, they're going to ask me. They're going to ask me about Jesus. I, I, don't, I don't have an answer for that. They're going to talk about the Trinity. I don't know what to say. They're going to talk about the deity of Christ. They're going to talk about the Bible and why it's trustworthy. I don't know what to say. I'm going to hide from this convo. I'm gone. When God say no, always prepared for a defense. In this case, Jesus knew the case was it was an argument, but there are other times where that's not the case. And yes, we understand that our critics oftentimes are very malicious. Those who, who oppose Christianity can be very violent in their wording and, and antagonistic. But we all know that there are some people who just, they just want answers. They're just trying to search, they're trying to make sense of life. And maybe that's where you're at today. Like, I'm not trying to be a skeptic, but really, how can you say God created this world in six days? Like, just, I'm not trying to cause a problem, just help me here. I'm not trying to cause the problem. But, but help me understand why Jesus is the only way. And now my friend who's a devout Muslim or Buddhist is not going to heaven. Like, help me understand this. I, I, I'm not trying to be hard here. I'm just trying to learn. And man, I'd love for us to have an answer to that. I was thinking about this this week. The confidence of our testimony comes through the stability of our belief. I want you to hear that. The confidence of your testimony comes through the stability of your belief. You become more confident to talk about what you are stable and you, what you believe about. All right? And don't be mistaken. You don't need to go to Bible college or seminary to defend your faith. Some of the greatest people that God's used in history have no more than an elementary school education, if that. But they were diligent. A guy named John Owen once, who was very educated, great degrees, well-known in society in England. He was a great preacher who wrote great things, a Puritan preacher. And there was a guy named John Bunyan, who was a great preacher, but uneducated. And John Owen says, if I could preach as good as that tinker over there, I would give up all my learning for it. 
because John Bunyan was a man of the word. He studied God's word to know it and defend it. He's like, I'm not going to worry about what degrees or, or education I have. I have God's word. It's at my fingertips. I'm going to study it. And I know for some of us, we're like, I don't know where to begin. Well, I'm going to try to help you there, all right? But I want you to have a confidence. You might remember the first time you drove a car. It's a scary endeavor. I, I just couldn't get a right turn down. I mean, I was, I was real tight turns. My dad's like, you're going to hit that fire hydrant, you know? <laughs> and then you might remember the first time on an expressway, merging on. You're just there on the shoulder there waiting for the cars to stop. You're like, how do I ever get in this thing? But now, you know, a few years later, you got your seat back, hand on the steering wheel, and one glance over, you just flip the, 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 the turn switch and come over. It's smooth. Why? Because there's confidence. You've done it. When you're new in the workplace, everything, you're like, your, your eyes are just glued to every detail. But after you've been in a job for 15 years, you're just like, hey, this is, I got this. You know, I could do this in my sleep. When you're in high school for the first time, you walk those hallways, I got lost at Lane Tech. I was like, why are the odd numbers of the building on this side and even on the other side of the building? That makes no sense to me. So, you know, you go in the bathroom, you got your map, you're just like, hoping no one sees you. <laughs> but by the time I was a sophomore, junior, you walk in those hallways like, oh, room 221, it's right over there, right by hallway H and whatever. Because why? It's familiarity. You know, when we think about this beautiful faith that God has given us, God wants to establish our confidence. But again, the confidence of our testimony comes through the stability of our belief. The more you know what you believe, the more confident you will be in representing. And when you don't have an answer, you won't panic. You won't freak out. You say, all right, I'm going to go back to the drawing board on that one. That's a good question. And that's okay to do. It's okay to do that. I don't want us to look back and say, I wish. I want us to look forward and say, God can. Don't look back and say, I wish I would have been more diligent. I wish I would have been more confident. I wish I would have been more bold. I wish I would have studied harder. But say, God can help me even now represent him. And so that's what we want to see take place. Yes, no, we don't want to get caught up in absurd arguments. But man, we want to engage a sincere soul that's searching and so Jesus here, he doesn't play the game with these guys. He's like, you don't want to know, you want to pick a fight. But I was thinking, what if Jesus did answer their question? By what authority do you do this? What would he have said? Well, I think one reason why Jesus wasn't ready to play the game is he had already told them by what authority. Throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, Jesus is saying, the Father has sent me. I am from heaven. I am not from this earth. I come with the authority of God Almighty as I speak. In fact, after Jesus' resurrection, he says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. See, Jesus would have told them, my authority, I'm God. That's my authority. I'm walking this earth as God in flesh. But he knew there were no place to hear it. Well, on what basis do we believe Jesus? On what basis? And that was a question that was often asked of Jesus. All right, you're making these claims, but why should we believe what you're saying? I want us to jump over to the book of John chapter 5. It's page 890 in your Bible, in your pew Bible. Because Jesus had already hashed these things out, why you should believe in him and his authority. He gives four reasons in this passage. I'm going to give two more. 
So I know we're jumping around some here. But I want you to hear what Jesus says because it's remarkable. John chapter 5. As we look here, verses 30 and following, basically Jesus is saying, hey, this is why what I'm saying is true. He said, I'm going to give you four reasons. The first one he says is this, and I'm, by the way, if you are searching today, if you're trying to see, okay, why Jesus, these evidences will be compelling. I, I believe they are compelling. This is where my faith is rooted. And maybe you know Jesus, and you don't need more evidence to make it a compelling belief, but you need some catapulting belief to take place. You need to be thrust out. You need God to take you. All right, I'm winding you back. I'm going to let you go, and you're going to fly with confidence because of what you're being reminded of here. And the first thing Jesus says is this, again, John the Baptist question. If you look there in verse 32, Jesus says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Jesus is saying, John the Baptist came, saying, hey, Jesus is here. He is the one that Isaiah talked about 500 years ago. Jesus is one whose sandals I am unworthy to tie. And so John the Baptist is saying, Jesus is the real deal. So that's why when he asked them, well, what about John's baptism? Jesus is saying, if you believe in John, you believe that I'm the one you've been waiting for. But there's not only John the Baptist. There's a second thing. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus is saying, All right, if you don't believe John, check out all I've been doing. You saw me feed the 5,000. You saw me heal the blind. You saw me heal the paralytic. You've seen all that I've done, turning water into wine. You can go on and on. You've seen it. If you don't believe John, look to my actions. And you know what's interesting? If we look in the book of Mark, never are they saying, Jesus, I don't believe what you did. The question they ask is, Jesus, how did you do what you did? They question his authority. So yes, John the Baptist was one who talked about Jesus, Jesus' own works that no one disproved. No one, there's not a shred of evidence throughout all of history of someone saying Jesus didn't do that. Here is why. Not a shred. Not his own contemporaries. Not those after his resurrection. The most antagonistic people to the Christian faith from the first century on have not found a way to disprove it. But Jesus says there's a third thing. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Jesus said, you were there when I got baptized. You heard the voice from the heavens saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus said, you, you heard that. God the Father has borne witness that I'm the real deal. We'll jump down to verse 39. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus is saying, if you dig into the Old Testament, you're going to see prophecy after prophecy saying that I'm going to be here. Read Psalm 22. Where the psalmist says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross fulfilling that. Read Psalm 110.1. Where David's descendants will be, descendant will be greater than David. He will call him Lord. Read Isaiah 53 where God 
says that his servant will be as a lamb to the slaughter and upon him our sins will be placed. Read Genesis 3.15 where God says he's going to send from Eve's offspring one who will crush the serpent. Jesus is saying, you read the Old Testament, you're reading my story. So if John the Baptist weren't enough, what about the works? What about the Father? What about scriptures? Jesus there in John 5 is saying, hey, there is compelling evidence to believe in me. But there are two more threads of evidence that just hadn't happened yet. One was the resurrection. If you think that wasn't enough, what about Jesus raising from the dead? Luke 24. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared to place on this dead body that should have been rotting and decaying by now. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Why? <laughs> well, while they were there, they were perplexed about this. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? You came to a tomb. Dead people are in tombs. You're looking for Jesus. He is alive. He was not in the tomb. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that he'd do this? For generations upon generations, people know that the Christian faith hinges on Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And all kinds of theories have been put forward to disprove it. People say, well, maybe the disciples held the, uh, hid the body. They stole it from the tomb. Yeah. Would you die for a lie that you made up? Can you get 11 other people to do that with you? No. They say, well, maybe the Roman soldiers. Really? I guarantee you those guys who were at the tomb were executed. And believe it or not, the most compelling of the arguments against the resurrection that's understood in the academic world is that there was a mass hallucination. Like a Bigfoot theory. Dead serious. I read a book on it. Legit. People, people are saying that's, that's the most compelling uh, opposition to the resurrection. And a guy named Gerd Ludman wrote about this. He doesn't believe in the resurrection. He says, but this, it must have been a mass hallucination. To which when we read 1 Corinthians 15... Paul says, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. 500 after his resurrection. It's compelling. Jesus is alive. And there's been nothing mounted ever to disprove that. John the Baptist, his works, the Father, the Scriptures, the tomb, and then there's you. Then there's you. <laughs> Has your life been changed by Jesus? If he were still dead, could he change your life? No. See, the transformed lives that God has done because of the death and resurrection of Jesus is compelling evidence. I love how Paul says this. He says, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. In fact, in Acts 22.4, Paul says, I persecuted Christians to the death. He says, I put Christians to death. I was there when Stephen, the first one who died for his faith, I was there giving approval to his execution. 
And then he met Jesus. And he says this. He says, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He changed Paul's life. And who was once a persecutor became a preacher. One who was an opponent came to the greatest defender of the faith. Church family, we've seen the stories here on our baptism Sundays at the brook. One thing that's been so sweet in our real communities the last few weeks is we're hearing people talk about their stories, what God has done to change their lives. And church family, the Christian faith is compelling. And let no one make you shrink away in shame by their questions. That call is for you and me then, who follow Jesus, is get in the book and have an answer for those who put your faith on trial. We serve a God who is the judge of all, who will determine determined that he is true. It's in the scriptures that we find the answers to the questions like, is the Bible filled with contradictions? It's a common accusation, isn't it? Oftentimes I love telling someone, like, okay, show me one. <laughs> show me one. You see, the Bible is reliable on so many fronts from its manuscripts that have been, that are, that are found ancient manuscripts that confirm one thing after another. Give it a study, you'll be blown away. There have been opponents. There's archaeological evidence. It goes on and on. Why do Christians have the audacity to say that Jesus is the only way to eternal life? Well, first of all, Jesus said he's the only way to eternal life. Second of all, it only makes sense according to what we see in the scriptures and in our lives. You see, the truth of the matter is when we are people who are born in sin, which we all are, there needs to be an answer for that sin. And every world religion says, you got to do good, be better, and try harder. But we all know that the more you try, the worse off you often are. Because you're not strong enough to overcome your own sin in your life. And so that's why Jesus is the only way, because he's the only one who overcame our sin. He went to the cross for us. He was punished instead of you. His, your sin was put on his shoulders instead of you paying the penalty for it. Yeah, he is the only way. Yes, Christianity is exclusive. And no, I'm not embarrassed to say that. So you're saying that good people don't go to heaven just because they're good? No, that's exactly what I'm saying because there's no such thing as a good person. We're born in sin. And there's only one who is perfect and it is God himself. How could an imperfect person be with the perfect God for all of eternity without that perfect God being tainted by their sin? How could a righteous judge allow us to be acquitted when we're still guilty? No, it was punished, our sin. There was a price and a penalty that was paid, but you don't have to pay it. So no, good people don't go to heaven. Sinful people who have been saved by Jesus go to heaven. Well, it sounds to me like you believe in three gods, Father, Son, and Spirit. I'll admit the Trinity is a beautiful mystery, but I'd much rather worship a God I can't explain than your God who we can. You see, the Bible says that Jesus is God. And I can show you the scriptures, that the Spirit is God, and I'll show you those scriptures, that the Father is God, and I'll show you those scriptures. Here's where they're at. And yes, the Bible says there is one God. And I affirm it, I say yes and amen to all of that. 
Because the word says yes and amen to all of that. It's a beautiful God we serve. How could God create the earth in six days? Well, he is omnipotent. He's a God who's all-powerful. He has no box by which he is stuck into. He is not inhabiting a space and stuck in that space. The heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool. Is an illustration that helps us see the magnitude of our God and indeed he could do it. Does the Bible really teach that God made marriage for one man and one woman? Indeed he has because marriage on earth is a picture of marriage in heaven between Jesus and his wife who's called the church. And from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, when God made Adam, he made Eve, and he made it, and it was good, it says. And he brought them together and told them to be fruitful and multiply according to his design. Yes, the word teaches this. Well, why do you believe Jesus raised from the dead? Well, we've been there already. The disciples didn't steal the body and die for a lie. There's no mass hallucination. The tomb is empty. Well, what if all this is a lie? How do you know it's true? We get all the evidence in Scripture, all the evidence of history, (laughs) and all the evidence in my life. He's changed me. Christianity is for not intellectuals. It's a crutch to make it through life. I would say, study the faith, and you'll realize the theology of who God is you'll spend a lifetime digging into. It has stumped scholars and the most brilliant of minds through the ages. The greatest thinkers that ever walked this earth have dove headfirst into this scriptures and saying, hey, if I had infinite lifetimes, I would not be able to exhaust this God. But yes, a child can say, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And so this magnanimous God can connect with just the most innocent child. And yes, this is our God. And yes, there is evil in our world. And yes, it touches us all. And yes, we serve an all-powerful God who does allow evil in this world. And there are mysteries in this that I don't know how to explain away. But what I do know is that God has used the greatest of evils and used it for good. Look no further than the cross of Jesus, who through the greatest evil ever done, when God himself was put on a cross, tortured for you and me, the greatest of good, the salvation and the hope of eternal life was accomplished through suffering. And it's not to make light of our true trials and struggles and hurts and pains and questions. But it's to say that there is a God who's in control, even in this broken world. Oh, church family, I pray God would just ignite a passion in you to not be afraid to talk through this beautiful faith. And yeah, when you don't have an answer, you go back to the scriptures. And you say, where do I start? I would say, start in the book of Romans then. Pick it up. 16 chapters. For a week. You'll be done before a month is over. And just dig, dig, and dig. Well, Jesus didn't give an answer to the skeptics at that moment. Because Jesus knew that they were bent on rejecting him. And you know, that's oftentimes going to be our plight. 
There'll be times where you do muster the courage finally, and like, I'm going to tell this person about the hope that is in me, and they're going to flat out reject everything you're saying. They may even mock you. They might even laugh at you. But it's not you they're rejecting. And that should not cause us to shrink away. See, what Jesus does here, he's in this temple, he's talking with them, he's saying, I'm not going to play your game here. I'm not going to engage these absurd arguments. And Jesus is saying, in fact, what you are demonstrating is what God already said would happen. Is that you who are pushing them away will be lost. So we go back to Mark chapter 12, where we started. Jesus ends this section with this brief illustration, a brief story I'm going to read for you guys. Mark chapter 12, verse 1. After he went back and forth with them about this question of his authority... It says in chapter 12, verse 1, that he began to teach them, or speak to them, in parables. And Jesus told them the story. He says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. There's an owner who owns this property. He built it up, he left it to his tenants to take care of it, and he left. Verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruits of the vineyard. He's the owner. He deserves that. And they took the servant and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the master sent to them another servant and they struck him on his head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed and so with many others. Some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. Verse 10, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in your eyes. Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him now, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. I'm going to give us a quick summary here. Jesus tells the story of this master who owns his vineyard, and he left it in the charge of people. And then when the time came, he sent his servants to come and collect the fruit of it. Collect the rent, so to speak. And each servant that came, they beat him and they pushed him away. And what Jesus is saying here is, look, Israel, the Jewish people, God has given you the promises of God to be a steward of it. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And he's given it to your care. And he sent his servant, the prophets, to come and to talk to you and turn you back to him. But with one prophet at the other, you beat him down. And sometimes you even killed the prophets. And then God said, finally, I will send my beloved son to you to set you straight. Surely they will listen to my son. And what the Jewish people did, they rejected the son of God, who is Jesus. And they cast him out. And Jesus says, look. What God's going to do, he's going to swing open the doors. And all that hope that was given to Israel, he's going to extend to everyone, to those who won't reject him, Jews and Gentiles alike. And so what Jesus tells us here is that, yes, his message will be rejected by some, but it will also be received by others. 
And when you're confronted with someone who is sincerely searching, there are times they're going to be turned off by the message of Jesus. And then there are other times where they're going to say, I want this Jesus you're talking about. I need to know him. I want to put my faith in him. So church family, as we see Jesus here, he always had a heart that was directed to those who wanted to know him. And my prayer is that God will give us that same passion, church. That we'd be broken for those who are far from God. And maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe the questions in your mind, and you're saying, God, I'm not sure about these ones. We want you to ask them, man, please talk with us. We want to walk with you through this. If you're searching and you want to know where you can find hope that goes beyond this life, where you can find forgiveness, it's in Jesus. And all the questions that come around you, we want to walk with you through that. Because that's what Jesus would have done. Church families, not look back and say, I wish, but let's look forward and say, God can. Walking with people, loving them, and pointing them to this compelling gospel, good news, that has changed the lives of millions throughout history and is doing so even now. Will you do that with me? Will we get on God's mission together? I pray that we would. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we who are children of God have been brought into a faith that is living and eternal. And God, I, I pray for each one who's here who's just feeling stirred in their hearts, God, with a renewed passion, Lord, to get in your word and study you, to learn you, to know you personally, God. And I pray that these words and this, this stirring of their hearts would not check out as they leave this building, God, but you would take it with them and that they would resolve in their hearts to know you and to represent you, God. Father, where there is fear, I know many of us have it, Lord, I pray you'd put the fears to rest. God, grant us the courage to walk with those who are searching. And God, I pray for those who are here today who don't know you, who are, who are exploring, trying to figure out the faith and understand this Christian faith and this Jesus I'm talking about. Lord, I ask that today, God, that they would come to know him, that they would see him, Lord, that they come to understand that it's he who came to this earth to die for them and to give them eternal life and hope. Lord, ultimately, Lord, I pray that this compelling truth would catapult us out of this building and into our workplace, into our schools, into our classrooms, into our homes and blocks. Lord, let us not be ashamed of the gospel, for indeed it is the power of God for the Jew first, but also for the Gentile. So Lord, do this, we ask, humbly, in the name of Jesus. Let's rise to our feet. I don't know about you. When I hear, um, when I'm reminded of why I believe what I believe, when I'm reminded of the good news, of the character of God, of this beautiful Bible that is God's word for me and you, when, when I'm reminded of God's love, it fills me with a desire to worship Him, 
to lay my life down and say, God, what, what better is there but to live for you? And so as we sing this closing song, let this be our declaration, our prayer. Prayer team, would you guys come forward and head to the back? God is moving your heart in one way or another. We invite you to, to come to one of our prayer leaders. They'd love to pray with you. They'd love to just cry out to God for you and bring your needs before him. And so let's lift our voices, guys. Let's sing together. And we are here to worship our God.